All right. So we are in the final section of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20 through 22. And we're just three verses into Revelation 20 now. So we're at the beginning of this section still, even though we've uh, taken a lot of time to look at the kingdom, what it's going to look like, what it'll be like. Most of the scriptural evidence of the kingdom we have from uh, the Old Testament rather than the New Testament, which is one reason why some theological systems forego the millennium altogether and uh, don't believe in its existence. Um, the, the issue there is that Revelation 20 doesn't need to tell us much about the millennial kingdom because it's so thoroughly covered in the Old Testament, uh, as long as the Old Testament is not allegorized. If it's taken at face value in its literal sense, the kingdom is clear and present in almost every chapter or at least every book of the Old Testament. So now in uh, chapters four through six, uh, John deals with a few issues about the beginning of the kingdom, specifically uh, one group of people that doesn't have revelation anywhere else talking about how they get in. Um, so he's going to deal with that in Revelation 24 through 6. Next week, we'll look at verses 7 through 10, which deals with the end of the kingdom. So you'll notice we skip right from issues about how it begins, and it'll go right to issues about how it ends. If you want to know what happens during the kingdom, go to the Old Testament. Uh, again, we covered some of those last time, so those are also on my YouTube channel. Uh, then it's going to close out the chapter with verses 11 through 15, um, which is the conclusion to this entire present creation. Uh, so we can look forward to that. But this week, we'll deal with just these three verses, verses four through six. And as I said, we're dealing with one specific uh, group of people, and that's this group of tribulation saints. Uh, they are not the church. They're not Israel. They're not Old Testament saints. The question would naturally arise because nothing is said about them anywhere else in Scripture. What happens uh, to these tribulation saints, both the ones who survived the tribulation and the ones who died during the tribulation? Uh, so the first issue that we have that we've got to deal with in Revelation 20, verse 4, it says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. Now, the issue here is, who is the they that sits on these thrones? Now, I've kind of already tipped my hat to the interpretation that I take, uh, but it's not as easy as it may seem to identify this them with the tribulation saints. In fact, the most common interpretation is probably uh, that this is the church um, I do not take that view, but I'm going to demonstrate why. Uh, in verses 1 through 3, we had a bit of a parenthesis about uh, the fate of Satan during and or before and during the, the uh, millennial kingdom, that he's going to be confined in prison during that time. And so this is coming back to the main line of the discourse. So John uses this, uh, this temporal um, adverb then to let us know that this is something coming in sequence, uh, but it is of a slightly different topic than verses one through three. And he sees thrones. Now, thrones have been visible before in John's uh, apocalypse. We want to know what thrones these are specifically. 
One place we might look is Daniel 7, 9. And I call this, uh, well, I, I call it Chekhov's Thrones, but it, it comes from the, uh, the saying about Chekhov's gun. There's this author, Russian author named Chekhov, and he said, whenever you see a gun come up in a piece of writing, eventually it will be fired. Uh, and that was his way of talking about literature and writing. You don't bring up elements that don't have purpose in the text. Well, these thrones that appear in Daniel 7, I call Chekhov's thrones because the thrones appear, but we don't get any information about them. Specifically, and most apparently, we don't get told who sits on them. Uh, Daniel 7, 9 says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were, were a burning fire. Hang on, I gotta get rid of this thing on my screen. Okay. So we've got Daniel sees these thrones that are set up, and then he moves directly into not talking about who sits on all of these thrones, but just one of these thrones. That's the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and he takes his seat on the throne of the universe. Uh, the Lord, the Son, is going to take his seat um, on the throne of the um, created universe for that thousand years. But what about these other thrones that have been set up? The answer probably is here in Revelation 20, um, as well as many other places in Scripture. But there's a few possibilities. We see in Daniel 7, 18, uh, which is in the same context, the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Now the issue of who are the saints of the highest one. In the Old Testament context, this most naturally speaks of Israel. Um, but when we look back to the Old Testament from the New Testament, we see that God's sheepfold has more than just Israel in it. Uh, the saints of the highest one will be anyone who receives salvation through God. So we see that there are uh, there is a kingdom that will be possessed by these saints, all of them. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus speaking to his disciples promises them thrones. It says, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Revelation 4.4 4 says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now here's one of my issues with Revelation 24 being the church is that the church is already seated on their thrones. And John has already mentioned them here. And so when he brings them up in chapter 20, these appear to be different thrones, uh, thrones that need some sort of a description. Revelation 3.20, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So these thrones that are sat, set up, that have people sitting on them, judgment is given to them. This is another reason why some, I try to identify this with the church, especially in, uh, say, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verses 2 through 3. So I'll give it a second to catch up. 
in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, Paul has just dealt with the issue of the 1 Corinthians carnality. And he's gone through things such as their, uh, their efforts to choose uh, leaders for themselves in the sense that some say, well, I'm, I'm of Paul's branch of theology. I'm of Apollos' branch of theology. Uh, Paul's response to them is, no, you're Christians. There's one branch of theology, and that's on Jesus Christ. Uh, then he goes into some uh, carnality that's resulting in sexual sins. Chapter 5, how to conduct themselves within the church, leads into this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 uh, about taking other Christians to law, which is Paul's way of saying suing one another. And so he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So his argument is, if you're going to judge the world, taking this argument for granted, why aren't you capable of handling internal affairs? Why do you have to take it to the laws of the world that judges things on the world standards? But people connect this passage with Revelation chapter 20 and say, well, the church is going to sit on thrones and the church is going to rule and judge. Um, so whatever's going on in chapter 20 looks a lot like what the church is going to be doing. So having come to that conclusion, they'll go hunting for some sort of a, uh, well, they'll go hunting for an antecedent. In 20 verse 4, the them uses a pronoun, autois, which is a masculine pronoun, and it's a third person plural. So they go looking in the context for a masculine third person plural, and they find one in Revelation 19.14, which says, the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now this is the church, and it is a third person masculine uh, noun. So it should fit. Well, it's a masculine noun, um, and it's by nature third person. Uh, but the issue is, it's a cumulative noun, meaning that the singular noun still has a plural idea. And so when you bring it down to its singular, you would have, and the armies sat on, uh, so they should be, the armies sat on the thrones and judgment was given to the armies. This uh, third person plural pronoun doesn't actually work as well as might see now if it said the individuals in the army or the, the uh, people in the army perhaps, but it also goes back seven verses uh, to a preceding context, which usually when a pronoun is used, it is anaphoric, which means it goes back in its context and points to something that's already been mentioned. But that's not the only option. It can point forward, as I think this one does, to the clause that comes just after this. So we would have the whole verse here. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. So using pronouns instead of identifying them with a noun builds suspense. 
and it draws the reader forward asking the question, who is they? Who are these ones sitting on the throne? Now, the reason most people don't like that interpretation is because the them, the autois, is masculine. This next phrase, the souls of those who had been beheaded, is feminine. And now that may be a, uh, a, a good argument against uh, this view. However, there's two arguments that still support it. One is that this could be a masculine according to sense, which means it's not trying to agree with the noun, but agreeing with the sense. Um, so this uh, sukas, which means souls, is a feminine word, so it had to be feminine. But the people it's referring to is a masculine and feminine group, and so the masculine is possible. But I think the best argument for this being the tribulation martyrs is that this is a compound complex sentence. It's not just the souls of those who have been beheaded, but it's also those who had not worshipped the beast. This forms the idea of one single unit or entity, and this is a masculine plural. Uh, this hoitenes in the pink is a masculine. So you've got a masculine plus a feminine. And grammar is just like math. When you add two things together, um, you get a product. And when you add a masculine plus a feminine, the product is always masculine in Greek. So a masculine huto or hutois, masculine them, would include both this following feminine and masculine uh, title for the people. So that is 15 minutes of me explaining a very simple issue of who is this them that sits on the throne. And the answer is the tribulation martyrs. And there's a very good reason for why John is talking about the tribulation martyrs here. There are plenty of other places we can go to see what the church or what the church's role in the kingdom is what the 12 disciples' role in the kingdom will be, what David and what Jesus' roles in the kingdom will be. But there's no other place where we see information about the tribulation martyrs and their role. John is giving clarity to this uh, loose end as he comes close to wrapping up his apocalypse. For example, here, the status in the kingdom for Jesus is that he is king over all creation. For David, he is the prince over Israel ruling on the throne of David in Jerusalem over the regenerated nation of Israel. Jesus rules from the same throne, but he rules a broader distance. He rules over the whole earth. The disciples are under David. They're princes over 12 tribes. So they are, uh, I guess you could think of them as David being the president of Israel and the disciples being the governors over the 12 tribes. The church is the rulers over the nations, uh, probably nations which they were associated with in, the, in this life. Uh, Israel, the, uh, well, the people of Israel will be regenerated, and they will be God's holy nation. All the mortals that enter into the millennial kingdom, they become kings and citizens of the mortal nations over which the church will rule. But what happens to the tribulation martyrs? The mortals who enter the king, uh, the nations, the mortals who enter the millennium, who become uh, mortal kings and citizens, 
were not the martyrs, but the tribulation saints. So what about the ones who die during the tribulation? Where do they go and what happens to them? Uh, Revelation 20 verses 4 through 6 is John's answer. What happens to the tribulation martyrs? Paul does the same exact thing when dealing with the church. When the church was introduced uh, in the church age at the beginning of the first century, uh, it was somewhat an unknown entity still, and there were things about its future and its destiny uh, that were not available yet in recorded revelation. And so God used Paul to record for the church what would happen to them in the resurrection. First Thessalonians uh, 4, 13 through uh, 14 says, We do not want you to be uninformed brethren about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now this was a very necessary comfort because the Thessalonians were uh, grieving because they were expecting the kingdom to come. They were expecting the Messiah to come back and he was tarrying. In fact, he's still been tarrying for another 2000 years. Uh, so they are worried now, those who have died, are they going to make it into the kingdom that we are waiting for, or is it going to be just those who survive and live into the kingdom? So Paul gives them the answer for the church. They will be resurrected. You can look at verse 16 and verses 17 of the same um, chapter and see that those who are alive are going to be translated, and those who are dead in Christ or sleep in Christ are going to be resurrected at the time of his return for the church. Israel also knew what would happen to them in the resurrection. We can go to places in Isaiah or places in Zechariah or here in Daniel chapter 12, where Daniel is told, as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. The resurrection was clearly taught in the Old Testament. Uh, some of the Jews, such as the Sadducees, did not believe in the resurrection because they only believed in the Pentateuch, not the rest of the Old Testament, so only the first five books of Moses. And the, the resurrection is not clearly taught in uh, the first five books of Moses, but um, it is still taught there, as Jesus will show them in Matthew 22, where we see the Sadducees come up who do not believe in the resurrection. They question Jesus. They give him that question about, okay, if this, um, this woman marries a man and then he dies and then she marries his brother and he dies and marries his brother and he dies, who she married to in the resurrection? He basically tells them, you don't understand the resurrection at all, uh, but uh, God is the God of resurrection. Uh, so the Old Testament taught about resurrection for the Old Testament saints. The New Testament, especially the epistles, teach us about the resurrection for the church age saints. What about the martyrs in the tribulation period? Well, he goes on to answer. He says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. Now, this word beheaded 
literally is beheaded, um, heads cut off, kind of beheaded. Uh, but it's the Greek word, kalakitzo, which literally means to chop off with an axe. Uh, it became the, a sense of chopping off with a sword later on, even though etymologically it still had to do with an axe. Uh, nowadays, it's not an axe or a sword that's used to execute someone. This is simply the Greek word for execute. Um, so the souls of those who had been executed because of their testimony um, of Jesus. Now, why I talk about this word here is because in the Left Behind series, which is an excellent series, uh, but uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins had to figure out how to have a 21st century style government revert back to chopping off heads with axes uh, in the tribulation period. And he brought out guillotines um, and used the excuse that the Antichrist wanted it to be as gruesome as possible to uh, encourage people to take the mark of the beast. Um, but honestly, there is no need for that uh, sort of an interpretation because though this is a literal word, it's what we call an etymological fallacy to say that it must mean only beheading by means of an ax or a sword here, uh, because it's simply the generic word used for government execution. We also see that in Revelation 6, 9 through 10, the very same group of people is spoken about. They are executed for the very same reason here. It's probably the exact same situation, but a different Greek word is used for their death, um, and it's the word to kill. Um, this word slain, it's the same word that uh, 1 John uses to talk about, um, to talk about uh, Cain slaying Abel. Um, and yes, this does etymologically go back to throat slitting, um, but it just has the word to kill with vengeance, or it has the meaning to kill with vengeance. So Revelation 6, 9 through 10 says, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So Revelation 6, 9 through 10, this is the fifth seal judgment. We handled it about two years ago now. Uh, but just to jog your memory, this seal judgment is about the tribulation martyrs. They are looking forward to their vindication. And John is writing this revelation to the church, which is also undergoing persecution. And he's writing it at the very end of the first century when they have uh, revelation through other sources, such as Paul, who teach them about their own resurrection. So he is showing God's justice and jo God's uh, vengeance on the enemies of God's people uh, in light of the resurrection here, uh, so that the church can be encouraged by this as well, that even those in the tribulation period are going to be, uh, are going to be treated well by God, though the world is killing them. And this is the reason that they were executed because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. Um, again, we saw that back in uh, chapter 6, verse 9, for the same reason. 
and John is applying this uh, even into the church age. This is generally the reason why persecution comes against the church, uh, comes against any of God's people. In Revelation 1.9, John says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So this word of God would naturally mean the scriptures, the logos of God, and then the testimony of Jesus. Uh, this word testimony is martura, marturia in the Greek. And it uh, comes, or we get this word martyr from it. Uh, a testimony would be something that you are willing to die for, or a um, something that is died for. And the term martyr actually comes from those who would stand on their testimony of Jesus Christ and were killed by it, were killed for it um, in the early centuries. And quite honestly, it continues even today. Uh, but this is a martyr, one who would uh, not recant his faith, but who stayed, uh, who, who ran the race faithfully to the end. Because he continued in this faith, because he did not depart from it, did not apostatize um, even in word, he was persecuted by the world. And the same will happen to the tribulation saints uh, during the tribulation period. It has nothing to do with their salvation, uh, can't lose that, but it does have to do with reward. And so uh, John, maintaining the course, uh, seeking the rewards of God, rather than the rewards of this earth or comfort in this earth, maintained his testimony in Jesus Christ, and he was persecuted by the world for it. The tribulation martyrs are going to be persecuted even to the point of death uh, for their testimony in Christ. Revelation uh, 24 here, continuing, uh, he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. So there's those who were put to death. These were generally the same as first professed Christ, professed the word of God, and they also refused to worship the beast and his image, and they also received to take the mark of the beast. Revelation 13, 15, when, we're, when we see the uh, Antichrist and the false prophet, uh, this is what is told us of the false prophet's ministry on earth. He is going to be the henchman of the Antichrist, essentially. It says it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So worshiping, or not worshiping the beast rather, came with a death sentence. And the false prophet would issue that death sentence and even affect it. Uh, by his uh, false signs and wonders. We're also told uh, that uh, he saw those who had been killed because they did not receive the mark of, uh, on their forehead and hand. Again, Revelation 13, 16 says, he causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free man and the slaves. In other words, this is, this is what's called a, um, a merism, where it goes from one side to the other and captures everything in between. So small and the great means from the small all the way to the greatest, from the richest all the way to the poorest, from the free man all the way to the least free man. Um, 
this is an, uh, an exaggerative way of saying absolutely every single individual on earth is going to be caused to be given this mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides, speaking of the power that's given to the false prophet through the Antichrist and through uh, Satan, uh, it says he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the name of his number of his name. Now, refusal to take the mark of the beast is refusal to worship the beast. Um, so a good reason for why no one's able to buy or sell without it is because if they're caught without it, they are dead. Uh, if they're able to avoid uh, this execution for not worshiping the image of the beast um, by not taking this mark of the beast, then uh, they are not able to buy or sell. And this would probably be an effort to squeeze them out so that they have to um, come out looking for food, looking for a means of survival so that they can either be forced to take the mark or be executed for refusing to take it. All right, so that's the issue. They were killed because of their faith during the tribulation. They uh, then come to life and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. This is the answer to the implied question, what about the tribulation martyrs? They will also be resurrected. This is the Greek word edzeson, which comes from the Greek word zoe. Um, I've got that here, which just simply means life. This is what's called an ingressive aorist. Ingressive um, means coming into or uh, looking at it from the perspective of the beginning. Uh, they came to life. This isn't looking at the end of their life, the progress of their life. It's looking specifically at the process of going from death to life. Um, we have the same uh, truth taught to us by Jesus in John eleven twenty five, where Jesus is speaking to Mary and Martha. Uh, Martha is beside herself that her brother Lazarus has died, and she knows that he's going to be resurrected in the future at the great resurrection. Um, Jesus is trying to tell her he's going to be resurrected right now. Uh, I'm going to resurrect him at least in a temporal sense. Uh, and that's what he's trying to tell her. So they're having this conversation where they're clarifying terms between the final resurrection, a present resurrection that he's going to um, do as a sign of his own resurrection. So Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. That's the Greek word anastasis, which is um, a lifting up or a uh, coming to be standing erect is what this Greek word means. Uh, he, so he is the resurrection, the, the rising up, and the life. So when you put these two together, it's unmistakable. He's talking about rising up from death to life. Uh, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. So that's the truth that Martha understood. She understood that even if Lazarus, being an Old Testament saint here, even if he dies, he is going to be raised again. He will live. But Jesus adds, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now, this uh, is a truth, basically, that catches both sides of the issue. If a person dies and they have believed in Christ, they will be resurrected if they die physically. What about the ones who live and believe but don't die physically? Are they going to have to undergo death before they can be resurrected? 
No, they will uh, be translated. The church is some that are translated. Those at the end of the millennial kingdom uh, who are believers will be translated into the eternal state. Um, so those who live and believe in me will never die. So there will be people who never undergo uh, physical death. They'll move straight from this life to the next because of the blood of Christ. And so Jesus, in all senses, is the overcomer of death. Anyone who has experienced physical death in their body, and even those who have not experienced physical death in their bodies, uh, when he either comes uh, to take the church by rapture, or at the end of the millennial kingdom when all mortals are translated, then he is the resurrection and the life, not just the resurrection. <laughs> but these ones, these tribulation martyrs, uh, are going to be resurrected. They will reign with Christ, and they will do so for a thousand years. So they're not going to be resurrected at the end of the tribulation. They're not going to be resurrected sometime in the middle. They get resurrected at the beginning so that they can reign with Christ. Now, interestingly enough, we have no mortal mortals uh, reigning together with Christ. Everyone who reigns with him has already undergone physical death or translation. Uh, all believers who are alive at the time of the rapture will be translated into their glorified bodies. They will reign with Christ. All church age saints, all Old Testament saints, and all tribulation martyrs. Everyone who has died will be resurrected at that time and will reign in some capacity with Christ. Now, this is really the issue of that reign. Uh, let's see. Is that what I was doing? So in Genesis 1.28, this kind of speaks to the purpose of the millennial kingdom. In Genesis 1.28, God states his purpose for creation to man. It says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it and rule over it. Uh, and he defines what it is. It's those living creatures on the earth. Uh, so this was their job to be fruitful, to have fruitful labors, uh, to multiply, requiring a married couple or a copulative couple, um, and to fill the earth, to reproduce, um, and then to subdue the earth, to rule over it, to have dominion over it. This is what Jesus comes to do. And until this is completed, there is, uh, or the purpose that God has in creation is unfulfilled. And so Jesus, who will rule over creation, will fulfill this creation mandate. And then, and only then, will it be time um, for this world to disappear. Second Peter 3.5 speaks of this. It says, by the word of God, the heavens existed or came into existence long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. That goes back to Genesis chapter 1 through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So the flood, um, and we see when, when, this, uh, when the flood happens, it's spoken of as a new creation. Uh, he completely wiped away what he had created before. Uh, we call this the doctrine of civilizations. What existed from creation to the flood was of a different order than exists today from the flood through the end of the tribulation period entering into the millennial kingdom. Um, so by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and by water. 
through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So this is why the, they reign with Christ for a thousand years and not for an eternity. Because God has a purpose for this earth, for man to rule over the earth. Not only will Christ rule over the earth, but those who are in Christ will also rule over it with him. They will have this fruitful multiplication, this, um, this filling of the earth, this ruling over it and subduing of it. And that will be terminated at the end of 1,000 years. After 1,000 years, God's purpose for this creation will have been fulfilled. And we can move on to the new heavens and the new earth. This is a brand new creation of a different class altogether than creation to flood, flood to um, the return of Christ and the millennial kingdom. Revelation 21, which we'll get to in a few weeks, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. So they are going to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years until God's purpose for this creation is fulfilled. This does bring up the issue. There are two resurrections. Um, he speaks now of those uh, left dead because, once again, John's tying up loose ends. He's talked about Israel. He's talked about the church. He's talked about the tribulation martyrs, uh, the tribulation saints. Uh, honestly, we go to uh, Matthew 25, and we find enough information about the tribulation saints who survived the tribulation. But what then of the rest of the dead? Well, he drops a, a hint here, and then he comes back to the topic once he gets to it chronologically at the end of chapter 20. He says, the rest of the dead did not come to life. Uh, this is just the same um, ingressive aorist, uh, but negated with a negative particle. Part of, yeah, particle. So, uk son, they did not come to life uh, until the thousand years were completed. Okay, that here's the issue, though. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and these are not in Jesus, how come? Like, we, we might be perfectly fine with they don't come to life, period, blank, and that. But there is a resurrection for them. It says they do not come to life until the thousand years were completed. The answer is first, that this is a little parenthesis. Um, he's putting this in the context of the first resurrection. He comes back and he states, um, full stop, this is the first resurrection. But this Greek word first, uh, it's first is a good translation of it. Uh, but understanding that it doesn't mean necessarily, okay, here's a sequence. So Jesus is the first one. And then there's going to be the church saints and then the tribulation are the, the two witnesses in the tribulation, et cetera, et cetera. No, it, it's the first of an order. Um, a better translation might be the earlier, uh, the anterior or foremost, because what we have is two classes of resurrection. So it's not speaking of the timing of Jesus comes first and then this and then this and then this, 
but we have two distinctions. There is a first resurrection and there's a last resurrection. So the first or the earlier resurrection is a resurrection unto life, where we have Christ as the first fruits of life. The church is then resurrected at the rapture, and it's the same category of resurrection. It's a resurrection into life. Uh, we have the two witnesses that are resurrected at the midpoint of the tribulation in uh, Revelation chapter 11. This is a resurrection unto life of the same category as Christ's resurrection. The Old Testament saints and the tribulation martyrs, as we just saw in verse 4, they are resurrected um, at the time of Christ's return to the earth to rule and reign in the millennial kingdom. So this is all the first resurrection. And then we have the latter resurrection, the resurrection unto death, where the Antichrist is the first fruits of death. In Habakkuk 3, we see that when the Messiah returns to the earth, he is going to slay the physical body of the Antichrist. Uh, in Ezekiel 28 as well, we see that the Antichrist goes down into Sheol. He's physically killed. But then in Revelation chapter 19, we are told that the Antichrist or the false uh, Messiah and the false prophet go into the lake of fire alive. The only way to reconcile that is to understand a resurrection has occurred where the false Christ, just like the Christ, is the first fruits of those who share the same category of resurrection. So where Christ is the foremost of the resurrection unto life and everyone who gets their life gets it through him. So here we have the Antichrist standing as the, um, the figurehead of the resurrection unto death. Everyone who uh, who is resurrected for that final uh, punishment is going to be resurrected in the same category as the Antichrist and the false prophet. So there is a resurrection waiting uh, for those, uh, the wicked dead, the unbelievers. The reason being, this natural body, or the probable reason being, the natural body uh, can die. The resurrection body cannot die. It's an eternal body. They are going to be cast into the lake of fire, something that a mortal body could not survive. But they are going to survive it, and they will be tormented for all of eternity in it because they are cast in in their resurrection bodies. But it's not resurrection to life. It's resurrection to eternal death. All right, moving on. Uh, we are going to come back to the second resurrection because that's the topic of Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Uh, but um, John's topic here that he's talking about is the first resurrection. So he says, blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. This word blessed, makarios in the Greek, is the same one that we call the beatitude uh, in uh, Matthew five, I believe. Uh, some translate it happy, uh, joyous, uh, blessed, and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection, and understanding as well that this is not just the tribulation martyrs, but everyone in the first resurrection, that first category, which is resurrection unto life. Back in Revelation 14, 13, uh, we had an angel come down and say, or a voice from heaven saying, 
write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. Um, again, this blessed is happy, meaning essentially things on earth are going to be so incredibly, terribly bad in the last half of the tribulation period uh, that it's happier to just uh, have your miseries ended uh, by martyrdom uh, than to continue uh, trying to fight against the, uh, the Antichrist. So those who are not protected in, uh, in Petra, uh, this voice is coming down to comfort them. Blessed are the dead in the Lord from now on. They get to rest from this terrible evil. Uh, and other verses, such as here in Revelation 20, verse 4, shows them that uh, death in Christ is really not death at all. It's just sleep until we awake uh, in our resurrection bodies. Uh, so there is the privilege of those who take part in the first resurrection. They are blessed and they are holy. That is a, um, a description of every single person uh, who gets to experience resurrection in the category of Christ's resurrection. There is also power in this resurrection, and specifically uh, a power against, because the second death has no power over those who experience the first resurrection. Uh, very thankfully, Revelation trans, uh, interprets this phrase for us, just a few verses forward, says this is the second death, the lake of fire. So those, all of those who uh, experience the first resurrection have no possibility of landing in the lake of fire. Their, their souls are sealed uh, in the life of Christ. There's also the promise then that those who take part in the first resurrection, they will be priests of God and of Christ. Revelation 1, 5 through 6, we saw this again, and notice, I, I know it's been uh, over two years now since we started Revelation, uh, but way back in his introduction, remember I, I said he has the end of Revelation rattling around in his head as he's writing the introduction. So he probably wrote this last, or at least he had just finished seeing the visions of uh, the last part of Revelation when he sat down to write. And so these were fresh on his mind. Revelation 1, 5 through 6 says, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Remember this term, witness, because of their witness or their testimony of Christ. It's the same Greek word, marturia. Okay. Um, uh, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, that first fruits um, of life or of resurrection, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is going to be the almighty king who rules in the millennial kingdom to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood loves us present tense released us aorist tense he is looking at that as a past finished uh, thing he uh, he released us from our sins by his blood we are set free from the penalty we have no penalty that we're looking forward to in our sins he loves us presently and uh, I think John's epistles that he had written to the uh, the same seven churches were also rolling through his mind at this time. 
uh, because he also taught them about the love of Christ and that the love of Christ, when it's perfected, is reciprocated back towards him and Christians mature in the love of Christ. And so he says he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Notice this as well as in the perfect tense. He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and his Father. This is positionally true of us, and we'll get to experience it in the resurrection. Not only are we priests, but we are a kingdom of priests. We are princes together with God. We will reign with him for a thousand years. And why this is not repetitive and would be repetitive if verse 4 is not speaking of just the tribulation martyrs, because verse 4 tells us, actually verse 4 and verse 5 tell us that the tribulation martyrs will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Here in verse 6, it says this is true of everyone in the first resurrection. They will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Thank you.